And what you see is that people have very different ways of seeing the world. You know, like stand there for a minute instead of just being annoyed. Think to yourself, like, how does that person see the world differently from me? What am I thinking that's different from this person? Just don't blow it off or be like, I can't believe what people will come up with. But just say, well, how is that different? You know, why is that different? Different strategies work for different people. And so instead of like saying to yourself, like, I'm weak, I have no willpower. Why is this person doing this and I can't? Or you're weak, you have no willpower. I don't understand why you can't just get with the program. It's like, oh, well, we maybe we just need to do things a different way. Let's set it up in a different way. Maybe we'll have better success. I study the patterns of the universe. That's the brain. Virtual, virtual, about your life. Fundamental principles. Philosophy. What is and what is not true. Those who know themselves. Being better every single day. Hello again, and welcome to the Think Grow podcast, where personal development meets real life. I am your host, Ruben Chavez, and I explore a variety of topics with thought leaders, creators, scientists, and all sorts of interesting people with the goal to enrich your mind and improve your life in really whatever way you see fit. That's the aim of this show. And today, I fulfill that aim by talking with best-selling author Gretchen Rubin. Uh, Gretchen is a star. Gretchen has been featured in many notable publications, ranging from Fast Company's list of most creative people in business. She's been interviewed by Oprah and in many other media outlets. Um, She has four New York Times best-selling books, and um, among those, The Happiness Project and the Four Tendencies, two of my favorite. Um, the Four Tendencies is actually the one we're going to be focusing in on the most today. Uh, but she has sold over three million copies of her books worldwide. So she's a very accomplished author. She also has a top-ranked podcast called Happier with Gretchen Rubin. So today we talk about personality frameworks. Personality is something that I've been into lately. If you've I've been following my 100-day project on my blog or on Instagram. You'll know that that's something that I've been talking about. And that is the the psychological uh, phenomenon that is personality. What implications does it have on our life and why is it important? And so we touch on that, um, but specifically we go into the four tendencies, which is a personality framework that Gretchen came up with. It's a very interesting framework. It actually tells a a great deal about who you are and kind of how you behave. Specifically, it aims to describe how you respond to expectations. So she'll get into the details there. I won't belabor the point there, but it is a fun personality framework. We talk about my tendency um, and, and also my wife Vanessa's tendency. I asked Gretchen how she uses her tendency to her advantage in her career and in her life. And I also asked her how she came up with the framework because I was curious about that and she gives some insights. And let's see, what else? I also asked her about how she approaches her writing in general. She's written about topics that have been written about a lot in the past, like happiness and habits, but she has done it in a, in a very fresh and unique way. And I asked her about her approach there. So, and, and, and a lot of other stuff. So the, we get into... Um, several different topics. I think you guys will enjoy this thoroughly. Let me know what you think. Drop me a, a comment on my Instagram or leave a review on iTunes. Those are always much appreciated. And um, with that, I give you Gretchen Rubin. Gretchen, thank you so much for being here. I'm so happy to be talking to you. All right. Well, let's let's get into it here. I um. Well, I know that we have a mutual interest, which is human behavior, patterns in human behavior. And part of that is kind of these personality frameworks. I was recently speaking with our mutual friend, Jonathan Fields, on this podcast about uh, the value of you know personality and psychological frameworks. And I love these kind of psychometric assessments. I think they have so much practical, real-world value. Um, you know, things like the big five personality traits, Myers-Briggs, these are tools to help us kind of understand ourselves and others better, of course. And then you come in with the four tendencies and I'm like, yes, this is, this is an <laughs> awesome framework. Um, can you just kind of lay out what the four tendencies 
are for people so, so so for people who don't know aren't familiar with them so they have some more context and you know how did you come up with them and what's the basic framework Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I love personality frameworks. I, you know, sometimes people worry that if you define me, you can find me, but I think that it's really helpful to have a vocabulary and a shorthand and it kind of helps you see hidden patterns in your nature. I think often with these frameworks. So the four tendencies um, is a very narrow aspect of personality. So it doesn't seek to describe a lot of things about you. Um, it's just telling you one very narrow aspect of your personality, but it ends up being a very important, significant thing to know about yourself or about someone else. And that's how you respond to expectations, which I agree sounds very boring, but it turns out it's very, very juicy. So we all face two kinds of expectations, outer expectations like a work deadline or a request from a friend. And we face inner expectations, the expectations we place on ourselves. I want to keep a New Year's resolution. I want to get back into practicing guitar. And depending on how you respond to outer and inner expectations in combination, you're either an upholder, a questioner, an obliger, or a rebel. So upholders readily meet outer and inner expectations. They meet the work deadline. They keep the New Year's resolution without much fuss. They want to know what other people expect from them, but their expectations for themselves are just as important. Questioners question all expectations. They'll do it if they think it makes sense according to their own judgment. So they turn every expectation into an inner expectation. If it meets their inner standard, no problem. If it fails their inner standard, they will resist. And they typically object to anything irrational, inefficient, arbitrary. Then there are obligers. Obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. And I got my first insight into the four tendencies it, it, it at all was when a friend said to me, the weird thing about me is I know I'm happier when I exercise. And when I was in high school, I was on the track team and I had no trouble going to track practice. So why can't I go running now? Why not? Well, now I know she's an obliger. When she had a team and a coach expecting her, no problem. When she's trying to go on her own, it's a challenge. And then finally, rebels. Rebels resist all expectations, outer and inner alike. They want to do what they want to do in their own way, in their own time. They can do anything they want to do. They can do anything they choose to do. But if you ask or tell them to do something, they're very likely to resist. And typically, they don't even like to tell themselves what to do. Like a lot of rebels don't like using to-do lists, for instance, or signing up for a class because they're like, I don't know what I'm going to want to do on Saturday afternoon. I'm not going to sign up for a class. Um, I mean, one of the things that's interesting is that there aren't equal numbers of everything. Like if you look at the Venn diagram, all the circles are the same size, but obliger is the biggest tendency for both men and women. That's the big one. That's you either are an obliger. You've got many obligers in your life. Um, questioner, your tendency is the second largest rebel smallest tendency. And then my tendency, the upholder tendency only is, is only slightly larger than, than rebels. So those are kind of the two smaller extremes. And then the bigger tendencies are questioner and obliger. So those are the four tendencies and it has a lot of implications for managing yourself or dealing with other people. Yeah, that's, that's, um, I find that to be true as well. And you say it, it they explain a very kind of narrow aspect of your, I guess, personality, but I find that I think the implications are even more far-reaching than one might assume because, yes, it's how you respond to expectations, but turns out like that covers a lot of areas of your life. Expectations <laughs> exist in a lot of areas of yeah. your life. Yes. Yeah. No, that's a very good point. It, it comes up a lot in a lot of different ways. But what happens sometimes is people will say to me, well, you know, all rebels are creative or all creative people are rebels or all all obligers are people pleasers or all upholders are super driven. I'm like, no, 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 you don't know that. You don't know because whether you're creative, whether you're ambitious, whether you're analytical, whether you're curious, whether you're introverted and extroverted, whether you're considerate of other people's feelings, whether you're idealistic, whether you're adventurous, all these things are separate from your tendency. And so you can have a curmudgeonly obliger. Um, somebody was just telling me about her big jerk obliger brother-in-law the other night. Um, you can be, there's nothing about being a rebel that makes you creative or uncreative. Um, it's, it, but you're right. So, so you could have 50 questioners lined up and they would all be very different from each other. But what would be the same is if you asked them to do something, they would say, why should I? That is at the core of the questioner tendency. That's their first question. Why should I? Um, but you're right. It turns out that expectations are ubiquitous part of our lives. It's like you're either 
responding to what somebody else wants from you or what you want from yourself. So, you, so it's, it, you're right. It like, it's super pervasive in its consequences, but you don't know, you can't judge anything else about a person just from knowing their tendency. Like you can't say like, Oh, you're, you're a journalist. You must be a questioner. Right. No. I mean, it might be that a, a questioner would really like being a journalist and would be attracted to that. Cause it goes to one of their core values, but a, an upholder could be a journalist. A rebel could be a journalist. An obliger could be a journalist that, that we don't really, we can't really know that um, in, in the absence of more information. Right. Right. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. So I, I'm a, I'm a questioner with, mm. with upholder tendencies. I find mm, good. That's what my husband is. Okay. okay. A very fine combo. Yeah. yeah. And my, my, uh, my wife, Vanessa is a hardcore rebel. And mm. <laughs> so this, it's so interesting because uh, like one example of how that manifests in our relationship is let's say we're having a, a disagreement I give reasons for why I did the thing that I did that she didn't like. And that means nothing to her. Um, but mm -hmm. to me, I want reasons, right? If someone wronged me or whatever, like I really need reasons. Um, and then with her, she really likes, uh, she, she is adamant about me using, I feel statements, right? Like, so like I mm -hmm. feel this and I feel, and so framing what I would like her to do and like, well, what do you feel about this? Like, why should I change my behavior? You know? And so I find that that's mm -hmm. very helpful actually in approaching, uh, how we even resolve disagreements. Yeah, no. And that's something that comes up a lot in the workplace. I hear from a lot of questioners who work for rebel bosses and a rebel boss will very frequently like suddenly change plans or change priorities or change direction or like go in it. And, and, and the questioner is like, well, I don't understand why. And the rebels like, I'm not interested in explanations. Like I just, now I know this is the top priority or like, now I want you to drop everything and work on this. And the questioners are like, what is the reason behind this? I can't get behind it if I don't understand why. Right. And the rebel's like, oh, come on. I don't want to be bothered with long explanations. <laughs> I'm just telling you this is where we're going. And so it is something that comes up often, as you say, in private life. And then also in the workplace, it can be very frustrating because rebels really aren't, they, they want to be true to themselves and their own vision. They want to put that out into the world. They want to do things their own way. And that can be very frustrating sometimes to questioners who, who want justifications. Really fundamentally, that's what that's what questioners need is to understand why something's being done a certain way. Yeah. And, and if I have justifications, like if I have reasons, I have the most motivation. Like, like you say in your book, you know, justification yes. leads to motivation. And that is so true for me. Once I have a reason, I do not need any more motivation. If I had a good enough reason... I like, for instance, I years and years ago, I radically changed my diet um, just overnight, completely overnight. I think you yeah. had a similar experience because I had yeah. enough reason to do so. And it was over from there. So did you ever have trouble at any time in your life where people saying like you asked too many questions, like people not like being patient with that or not understanding why or like a teacher who wouldn't explain why you needed to like do a certain kind of homework assignment or something where it got you into, it got, it, it created issues. Yeah. I, th I think I've um, really come into my, my own questioner self more as I, as I've, as I've aged. And I think in my relationship with, with my wife, um, I've asked more questions and it's sometimes caused some friction. Like, why do you need to know all these questions? And, yeah. but honestly, now that we have just that's why I think personality frameworks are are so helpful because now that we have some kind of framework to explain uh, the other person's behavior, it makes more sense. It normalizes it to an extent and helps us deal with it. Yeah. So, oh, that's great to hear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, thank you for that. And actually, I wanted to ask you. I know you're a kind of classic upholder, right? Yeah. 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 So, I, I'm curious as someone who's had a lot of public success. How do you balance being an upholder with not overwhelming yourself with commitments, for example? You know, how do you draw those boundaries? Because as, as an upholder, you're, you know, you're, you keep outer commitments and inner commitments. So how do you draw those boundaries? Well, it's interesting because I think for a lot of people, if you said which tendency would struggle the most with like burning out or feeling overwhelmed by expectations, they might say upholder because they're like, well, upholders have outer and inner. They've got like double dose. But the interesting thing is that's not true. It's really obligers who are most likely to feel that way. 
because the advantage of being an upholder is that you have your commitment to your inner expectation as well. And so I, it's very easy for me to say things like, I have to say no to that because I need time to read in bed because I need to have many hours each week where I just read in bed and for fun. And so I don't have time for that. Or like, I'm at an event and it's going late. I'm like, I have to go because I have to get enough sleep because I have to be, I, I have to, I don't like to be, wake up in the morning and feel exhausted. So I'm sorry, I'm going to leave before this is done, but I just have to get my sleep. Now this can make upholders seem cold sometimes to other tendencies because they have this commitment to their inner expectation, which to them seems perfectly reasonable. Like when I'm with other upholders, this never surprises me, but I see that other people are sometimes surprised. Like you're like me, we had this big, um, this big change in our eating habits. Well, I mean, I don't eat sugar. I don't really don't eat carbs. And like to the point where you really notice it if you're with me, like I don't eat a lot of things that other people eat. And, you know, and I don't find that burdensome at all because I'm just like, well, this is the way that I eat and, and I have to stick to that. And the, the fact that other people might think I should have a piece of birthday cake, it's like, well, I got to meet my inner expectations. So um, that doesn't feel like a weight on me. So I feel like, um, I, I will even write things on my calendar, like, you know, afternoon off or, you know, go to the library and read today. It's things that it's very easy for me to do the things that restore me, you know, to take time off. I will schedule time to wander or goof off, you know, to yeah. schedule time to, to take a break. Yeah. So, so would you say as an upholder, your inner expectations kind of supersede the outer expectations, even though both mm. are important, would you say your inner expectations supersede the outer expectations? Well, you earlier said that you were a questioner who tips to upholders. So um, all of the tendencies, as your sort of, it, um, ref, as your comment reflected, all the tendencies overlap with two other tendencies. And so even though I believe everyone's, most everyone is in a core tendency, you can tip one way or the other, and that will very much flavor how your ex, how your tendency comes out in the world. So on an upholder, in the one hand, if you looked at a diagram, you would see that upholders overlap with questioners because they both readily meet inner expectations. But then upholders also readily uh, overlap with obligers because they both readily meet outer expectations. So depending on which way you fall as an upholder, you sort of feel more the weight of inner and outer, or like it's like one is sort of more naturally favored. Um, you you can meet them both, but you might feel it, it's like you feel the the weight of one more. So I'm an upholder who tips to questioner, which means I'm very very. Uh, uh, my inner expectation will trump unless it's something extremely important to me. Like, obviously, like if my child needed me to, you know, cause she was sick or something, like I could let go of an inner expectation, but, but I wouldn't casually do that. My, my inner expectations have tremendous weight for me. Now I have a friend who's an upholder who tips to obliger, who's a writer like me. And one, like one of the things she does is that she can easily meet inner expectations, but if there's noise from outer expectations, she finds that very distracting and it's very hard to balance. So the way she does it, like I work in a home office, like right in my apartment, she goes out to a place where it's like very hard to reach her. Unless there's like an emergency, no one can really track her down because she's like, I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear the noise of other people's expectations when I'm trying to work or exercise or whatever. I need to keep that safe so that I can freely meet my inner expectations because I don't like to have to to think about outer expectations. Where for me, I'll just I'll just ignore you to your face. Uh, that's not hard for me, you know. <laughs> right. um, and so it depends on. Um, so your question is really like, which flavor of upholder are you? Mm. Um, but like, she has no trouble just like sitting down and writing. Whereas for an obliger, that might be hard um, without accountability. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, what I think is most helpful about knowing your tendency is that you can you can basically know how to set up your world your environment your life in a way that works for you like for example if you are an obliger you know you meet outer expectations but you don't meet inner expectations very well and in that case you can let's say you know let's say you want to uh, read more but you can't make time for it well you would set up a you join a book club, for instance, right? That you would have to kind of, uphold, yeah. you would have to kind of, um, you know, uphold those expectations. And so I think that's yeah. the, the real practical value is that you can kind of hack your, your life in a way that, or structure it in a way that is effective for you. 
Well, and I think you're exactly right. And that's the that's the thing that's sort of uh, that's that's really powerful, I think, about it is that a lot of times very simple changes just in the way something's described or a slight change in how something's structured or, you know, or recognizing certain kinds of patterns, you can just make it a lot easier for you to meet your aims for yourself or, or if you're trying to help someone else. Um, and your example is great. If you want to read more, well, a lot of times, what a, so if an obliger wants to meet an inner expectation, they have to create a structure of outer accountability. That just is necessary. And sometimes obligers don't like that. They're like, I don't want to have to depend on outer accountability. I want to just do it for myself. I want to have the motivation. I want to have the willpower. I want to like put myself first. I want to make myself a priority. And I'm like, forget about all that because it just doesn't work. And if I, you know, like who cares? Just join a book group or like there's a mil and there's a million ways to create outer accountability once you realize that that's the key thing. And for a lot of obligers, it's a huge relief to understand like, well, what is this mishmash pattern in my life of when I've exercised or when I've cooked or when I've been practicing French or whatever is to see that it's this outer accountability because it's not hard to create once you understand um that that is what you need. Same thing with a questioner. Like, let's say you're dealing with a questioner who's just not getting with the program. They're just not doing what you ask. Well, once you know that, like, maybe they just don't, maybe they just don't understand your reasons. And so they're just, they're not, in th they just haven't bought into your, whatever it is you're proposing. You know, like you might say to an, a, a questioner, can I have that report on Friday? And the, and the questioner's thinking to themselves, they're not procrastinating, but they're like, I know you're not going to read it till Wednesday. Friday's <laughs> just an arbitrary date. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, work hard to get it to you by Friday. That's ridiculous. Right. It doesn't make, it's a, totally inefficient. It's not a good use of my time. But if I said to that questioner, hey, can you get me that report by Friday? Because I'm going on a long flight on Saturday, and that's going to give me a real chunk of time where I can really focus on your work uh, without any distractions. And then when I go to the meeting on Monday, I'll have read the whole thing. It's like, Okay. That makes sense. Like it takes me one second to explain that to you, but it could be the difference between you doing that thing by Friday or you doing it by Wednesday. Because in your mind, it's like, well, if you don't have a reason, then I'm not, I don't feel any kind of compulsion to meet some arbitrary deadline. Oh, one thing I should say is that for anyone who wants to take a quiz, most people can tell what they are just from the just a brief descriptions that we've been talking about. But there is a, qu a free quiz at Happier Cast dot com slash quiz and like 1.3 million people now have taken this quiz um it's quick it's free it will tell you what you are but like i say a lot of times people don't even need to take a quiz they hear the description and they're like oh yeah i know what i am i know what my sweetheart is i know what my kids are i know what my coworkers are it's like it's not that hard to tell often <laughs> yeah yeah and I, and i love in your in your book that in, in the four tendencies book you know you have chapters dedicated to each tendency and then you give like practical ways to deal with the tendency on both sides you know for yourself and then for other people to deal with the tendency so i love that i think the whole idea is basically working with your nature right accepting your nature and and just working with yeah. it so i i love that idea yeah no it's, it was interesting to think through that yeah um i wanted to ask you a little bit about just take a step back and looking at the four tendencies from a meta perspective, kind of what I think is amazing is about this framework is that you essentially came up with it from scratch, right? You were working on your, on your book, um, better than before. Yeah. And you kind of, you, you kind of developed this framework from scratch, you know, and, and I think that's so fascinating. Can you kind of give a little bit insight as to how you arrived at that framework? Yeah, no, um, it was definitely, I would say, of everything that I've ever done in my life, um, including going to law school, it was definitely the biggest intellectual challenge that I've ever grappled with. So I, as you say, I was working on my book Better Than Before, which is all about how people make and break habits. And in the course of writing that, I identified 21 strategies that people use to make or break their habits. And 21 sounds like a lot, but it turns out some work really well for some people and don't work at all for other people or they're available to us at certain times, but not other times. So I wanted to give people every option so you could really know, like, what are what are all the things that people can use um, to make or break habits? But one of the things as I was going through, so I was reading everything I could about habits and I was talking to people relentlessly about their habits because I was trying to understand how people made use of all these strategies as I was identifying them. And I started to notice patterns that I couldn't really understand or explain. And so, um, you know, I mentioned earlier the example of the woman who had no trouble exercising when she was on the track team, but then she couldn't 
exercise now. Um, and the thing, is, my sister Elizabeth calls me a happiness bully because I am always kind of like quizzing people about their habits and their happiness. And so to me, I was like, this is a super, like, I, like it like hit me like a ton of bricks when she said this, because I'd heard people say this similar things before, but I was like, how do you explain it? And of course I could come up right now, just sitting here, like 15 different hypothetical answers. Why? But I was like, I've got to figure out what's really going on. What is the difference? And so I noticed patterns like that and then patterns like um, uh, like uh, people, there's certain people, a question that I often ask people was, how do you feel about New Year's resolutions? And, and a certain number of people would answer exactly the same way. They would say verbatim, I will keep a resolution when it makes sense to me, but I would not wait for January 1st because January 1st is an arbitrary date. That caught my attention because the arbitrariness of January 1st had never really bothered me, but clearly for some people, this was a really annoying idea that it would be this arbitrary date. And then like even writing a book about habits, I love the idea of habits. To me, they're energizing, they're freeing. I love, I was like enthralled with the subject, which of course was why I decided to write a book about it. But there were certain people who would say to me, oh my gosh, why would you write about such a loathsome topic? What a horrible subject. <laughs> and I'm like, that's so interesting. How are they different from me? Because to, because we have these very different conceptions of, of habits. So I was trying to make sense of all these patterns. Um, and you, earlier you mentioned the big five um, uh, traits. And one of the things that had always puzzled me about the big five is I'm a person who's very conscientious. I would say that, I mean, I would have said that about myself 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. I'm a very conscientious person. I've been a conscientious person since I was five years old. And it always puzzled me that people were like half and half. It's not like, it was like sometimes they were conscientious and sometimes they weren't conscientious. And this never made sense to me because I'm like, I understand when people just blow off things altogether. Or they don't care. Or they don't, for whatever reason, they just don't, they're just not conscientious. But I didn't get like when people were patchy, that was like, I'm like, what's up with that? Like, why are you sometimes doing it and sometimes not? So all these things were like banging together in my brain. I didn't know if they were related to each other, what the thread was that drew them together. How, like, did they have anything in common? Like what were, what was going on? Like, and it was just driving me crazy. And I would just sit and think and like try to, I came up with all these like weird, I don't know, I just couldn't figure it out. And then finally I was, I was sitting at my desk right where I am right this second. And I was looking at my to-do list, which I have one here right next to me right now. And I looked at it and for some reason into my mind came this word expectation. And it was like, it came floating up, you know, like in big bubble letters, expectation. And in that moment, I was like, this is the core idea. It's the idea of an expectation. And as I was thinking through it, I was like, but there, there's a difference. There's a difference between an outer expectation, something that's coming from the outside and something that's coming from the inside. And it just like, then everything. And I mean, I just remember the intense intellectual excitement of like seeing how it explained everything. And it was like outer, outer, inner, outer, inner, inner, outer, inner. Like, you know, it was like it had sort of the perfection of nature because mm. everything fit together in kind of this beautiful thing. And yeah. then it took me a while to like visualize it. And then finally I realized, oh, it's a diamond shape of four interlocking circles in a Venn diagram because an upholder is half questioner and half obliger and obliger is half upholder and half rebel and it all worked out and it perfectly explained the the spectrum of behavior that you see in um in people's behavior and like it kind of accounted for everything and it left nothing out and i mean i spent weeks being like well what about this and what about that and how do you explain this and what what about this and then everything even something like obliger rebellion which for some people for a while i was like well does this kind of violate my system i was like actually no obliger rebellion kind of confirms the whole system um so it was it was but the thing that's funny to me now is that it's so blatant it's so obvious i'm kind of staggered that no one has figured this out before because it's totally obvious. I mean, it's not, it's not, it's not like you have to be highly trained to be able to pick out what people are. It's often like really easy. Somebody was telling me on Instagram, they can often tell within one sentence what someone's tendency is. Um, mm. You know, um, so uh, yeah, so that's how it- Within one sentence of the other person talking, you mean? Well, well, this is Melissa Hartwig who has Whole30, um, which is a very, oh, okay, yeah. you know, it's a kind of a very specific way of changing your eating for 30 days. So they're all talking very much in this world of expectation because it's like, 
you know, how am I doing this? And just in the the struggles or that they that they experience or the way that they describe it or the way that they engage, you know, like the questioners are always like, well, why this and why that? Why do you include this instead of this? Ah, why 30 days? You know, and the obligers like I can never make time for myself. And what do I do if my children want to eat different food? Yeah, I think there's so much power in not dismissing other people's worldviews and figuring out why they believe the things that they believe, why Mm -hmm. they look at the world the way they do. And because when you Mm -hmm. get to that common ground, then that's where the real magic happens, I think. I think something else that helps is when something, when people are different from you, really think about why and how they're different from you. So for instance, I think in coming up with the tendency, it was an advantage to me that I am an upholder, which is a rare tendency because people would say like when my book, The Happiness Project came out, people would say to me, how did you get yourself to do all those resolutions? And I was like, well, I decided that they would make me happier. So I did them and then they did make me happier. So I just kept doing them. And they would say, but how did you get yourself to do them? And I'm like, I don't even really understand what you're, what you mean. Like, what is, what, like, why, what? See, cause I'm an upholder. So the fact that people <laughs> were reacting differently, I was like, that's, yeah. that they're saying something that is helpful to me. They're not experiencing the world that I'm experiencing. And one of the things where this comes up hilarious is office signage. Like the minute I go to somebody's office, I like make a beeline to the kitchen and look at the signs um, because or the bathroom stalls because there's this hilarious sign. And what you see is that people have very different ways of seeing the world. And they have very different views about what it means if you do or do not like rinse out your dish and put it in the dishwasher. And it's like, think about it, you know, like stand there for a minute instead of just being annoyed by the sign that says your mother doesn't live here, clean your own dish. Think to yourself like, how does that person see the world differently from me? I either agree with that sign or I think it's ridiculous. If I think it's ridiculous, okay, why? What am I thinking that's different from this person? You know, like, don't just like be like, just don't blow it off or be like, oh, people are like, I I can't believe what people will come up with, but just say, well, how is that different? You know, why is that different? This came up for me with moderators and abstainers when it comes to giving up, when it comes to resisting a strong temptation, like sweets or chips or alcohol or like, you know, uh, games on your phone or video games, whatever. Some people do better when they give up something altogether. Like I have a tremendous sweet tooth. I gave up sugar. I love it. It's like, I can have none or I can have a lot. I can't have a little bit. It's too hard for me to have a little bit. I can never have like half a dish of ice cream or one Oreo, but then some people are moderators and they do better when they have a little bit, like they like to have a few French fries or they'll have something sometimes, or they'll do it a little bit. And that works for them better. They get kind of panicky or rebellious if they're told they can never do something or never have something. Well, this is huge. If you are trying to like change your eating habits or change your, your, how many, how much online games you play, because if people keep saying to you like, oh, just be moderate and follow the 80, 20 rule and, you know, take a day, like have be six days healthy and one day have a splurge day or just have, you know, just have, um, you know, half a piece of cake. It's like, that's good advice if you're a moderator, but it's terrible advice if you're an abstainer. Um, and once I was like, oh, well, some people are one way and some people are another, it's like, okay, well, it's not that one person's right and one person's wrong. It's just that different strategies work for different people. And so instead of like saying to yourself, like, I'm weak, I have no willpower. Why is this person doing this? And I can't, or you're weak. You have no willpower. I don't understand why you can't just get with the program. It's like, oh, well, we, maybe we just need to do things a different way. Let's set it up in a different way. Maybe we'll have better success. I wanted to ask you about, okay, because I know you've had an interesting career. You started as, you started your career in law. You were um, clerk for um, Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. And then you 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 just kind of decided to be a writer um, and, and you, you wrote some history-based books. Then you switched genres entirely. Given your career history and from what I can tell about you from your books, you seem to be just really uncompromising in your efforts to pursue fulfillment and happiness and what's true to you. I think that a lot of people don't have this quality. They, you know, let's say stay at careers they don't want to be at, even though they are called by something else. What do you think is at the root of this quality of yours to relentlessly pursue the things that matter to you? Is it just part of being an upholder that you follow through on these commitments to yourself? Or what do you think it is? Well, I definitely think that at least in the way it kind of unfolded for me, I think there's a lot of ways people could have made that transition. But the way that it happened for me, I think it was definitely an advantage to being an upholder. I mean, so I was clerking for Justice O'Connor and I got the idea for the book that 
for in a book that eventually did become my first published book. And I was just doing all this research on my own. And then I thought, wow, well, maybe I want to be a writer. And I went to the bookstore and got a book called something like How to Write and Sell Your Nonfiction Book Proposal. And I just followed the directions. And, you know, I mean, and, and, and people have said, like, well, how did you do that? With, with No one was waiting for you. You didn't even have an agent. Like, how did and I'm like, That's, that wasn't hard for me. It's like if I'm if I decide I want to do it, I can. And so that so that was good. Now, I mean, the problem with upholders and all the tendencies equally all this is a, this is an issue for all the tendencies is you have to hear the inner voice you have to ha know what you want for yourself now how you would create the circumstances that would allow you to meet that aim for yourself would be different depending on your tendencies but but no one can meet an aim if they don't know that they have it these inner aims must be articulated in order to be met and so um so it took me a long time to realize that I wanted to be a writer. Um, you know, I went to law school. I clerked. I mean, I did all kinds of stuff. And then finally, I was like, you know, I think I would really like to do this other thing. And um, and then once I heard that voice, then I was able to to do the things that would be necessary to try. Now, I didn't know if I would succeed or not. But at, at a certain point, I was like, well, I'd rather fail as a writer than succeed as a lawyer. So I'd better give this a shot. But it, I had to it, I had to wait for that to have the idea and to have the the uh the recognition that that's what i wanted but you know and then looking back i'd done everything to prepare myself throughout my life to prepare myself for being a writer um you know without realizing it yeah and and, and i think this kind of is part of a trait of yours that that you're fond of and that i share with you actually is that you become obsessed with certain topics yes. right and yes. and so it sounds like you just throughout your life were obsessed with certain topics and that yep. just the outgrowth of that was like, well, I write about these topics. I'm obsessed with them. Why not turn this into a career? Yeah, no. Yeah. It's, it's like so fun, but there's nothing more fun. I just became obsessed with Dolly Parton like two days ago and I'm like, <laughs> Oh my gosh, I am learning everything I can about Dolly Parton. And it's funny, I'm sure anybody who like follows me is like, oh, I see something's coming up. And it was like with color. I was I was recently obsessed with color and like all of a sudden it's just like any of my feeds or my writing, my blog posts, the podcast, all of a sudden it's like, wow, there's a lot about the subject of color all of a sudden, you know, I'm like, well, there it is. Uh, I'm obsessed. What can I say? I think about it all the time now. <laughs> and then and then something else will come. So it's it's thrilling when it happens. So do you think this uh, your quality of being of kind of latching on to these somewhat obscure obsessions sometimes is is this um, part of how you're able to write about subjects from such a unique angle, even though I know that your books don't necessarily have to do directly with your your unique obsessions that, that you research. But I'm just wondering, because I think, you know, as an uh, someone who is working on a book right now, actually. And for people oh. who want to write a book, you know, you've written a book on happiness, which has been written about a lot. And I'm just wondering, you have a very unique take on mm -hmm. it and a unique perspective. The book did very well. What is it about your writing? How do you approach it in a way that is fresh and that you don't just rehash things that mm -hmm. have already been done? Well, that's a very big issue, um, you know, that you're pointing out. Um, and one of the things about me is that I read constantly. It's like it's my playground and my cubicle. You know, it's my treehouse. Um, and I just went to the library this morning right before I started talking to you. Um, <laughs> and so one of the things I think that's good and I have very weird tastes, like I read a lot of books that no one's heard of or that they haven't heard about in decades because I just have all kinds of weird ways of knowing what I want to write about. Uh, I, I, what I want to read about. And I think that that is good because I just am constantly taking in new information and I have extensive note taking habits. So for me to read a book that I like, I often am taking notes on it, which is, which is cumbersome. I mean, it takes time to do it. It sounds like, oh, you just like type down a few things, but um, it's often, uh, it, it takes time. But what it does is it helps me remember what I've read and like what's most important. And I'll often go over my notes that are in a, like a lot of different subjects. And then um, I think it's for that, that helps keep new ideas coming into my into my mind. Um, because you're right, the hardest thing to do is to have an idea or to have an insight or to see 
something that everyone has seen, but in kind of a new way or a new way to frame it that makes it fresh. Mm. Um, one of the things that I like to do is also to take subjects that are talked about um, like either at great length, like something like the life of Winston Churchill, where I wrote a biography of Winston Churchill or, um, uh, um, or something like happiness where there's just like a gigantic amount of information. Plus a lot of it is very jargony or it's like not that accessible to, uh, to the lay audience. And so, um, so part of what I'm trying to do is like, can I put it into language where the ordinary person who's interested in this subject can understand these ideas, uh, in a very vivid way. Um, so like with happiness, it's like, you know, it's too big a subject. Like, for me to come up with something totally new. If I came up with something totally new, it's probably wrong, right? Because like the greatest minds throughout history have been thinking about happiness, but can I make it fresh? Can I make people see it in a different way or understand it for themselves in a different way? Can I explain it in a way where people are like, oh, okay, like I get it, or in a way that is significant, that means something to me, not just like my, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's kind of interesting, but um, the, it, it, I mean, you can't make yourself have an idea that, or you can't make yourself have a fresh um, take. So I think the yeah. way for me, and I think people get ideas in all different ways, but for me, it's really from talking to people, just the people around me. Like I never do interviews. Like I would never go like interview a scientist or something like that. Cause I'm like, I just want to read what they wrote. I'm like, it's much easier for me to take in information by reading. So I'll read what they wrote or I'll just talk to the people in my life and, or like people who email me. I mean, that's one of the reasons I love social media is like people are constantly, anytime I throw out an idea, like with abstainer moderator that I was just talking about, I thought this was only me. I thought it was only me who couldn't have a little bit that could, couldn't deal with moderation. And then when I wrote about it, it was like, all these people were like, Oh my gosh, I can't do that either. Like what's up. And I'm like, this is a huge number of people. This <laughs> isn't just my private problem. This is just, there are two different approaches to this, both of which are legitimate. And so I love the fact that I am con like if I throw out an idea or, or, or I'll get an idea um, from engaging with people and it's so immediate. So so um, that's also a big a way that I really deepen my understanding or I, under I, I can see how certain things really resonate with people much more than others sometimes in ways that I can't even really understand, like why people are so excited about a certain subject, but you're like, well, there's something there. Um, so I need to think about it more, do more research on this like aspect of it. Um, so, so that's how, that's how I do it. Um, it's really by reading and taking notes and just talking to people. That makes sense. And you have a really effective note-taking system, which I highly recommend people read your blog post that you've written about it. Um, we don't have a lot of time to get into it here, but it's, it's, it's an awesome way to not only, you know, if you're a writer, to, to kind of gather your thoughts on a subject, but also just if you're reading, to remember what you're reading and to kind of retain yeah. it better. So I've definitely yeah. implemented parts of it and, and I highly oh, recommend good. people checking it out. Yeah. Now what's your book? Tell me about your book. Well, it's, that's why or maybe I, you don't want to talk about no, it. Yet. No, no, no. I, it's funny because it's taken different forms, right? Um, I actually mm -hmm. like it started as, as one thing moved as another, like I, the subject of personal development is, I think it's very broad and I, I kind of want to parse it down to something that's more specific. And part of what I like to do, which I think you, you share is kind of distill or translate age old wisdom, you know, into modern language and into, in, into an accessible form. And so it's going to be something like that. Um, I'm in, really interested in the different philosophies and the different schools of thought that have existed throughout history and how they line up with each other, particularly um, schools of thought that, let's say, originated in completely different geographic locations concurrently, but that overlap in a lot of ways. Like That's fascinating to me because then you have like timeless principles that are kind of like, okay, well, there's something here that people are noticing independent of one another. And so it's going to be something along those lines. Um, but uh, yeah, it's still taking, taking structure. So hmm. sounds great. Structure is always very, very hard. I find like, I think if anybody read any of my books, they would say like, this is just like the most obvious structure. Like, why would you like what other possible could possibility could there be? And with each case, I restructured the happiness project like four times. I mean, from top to bottom before I hit on the structure, which again is like super obvious and seems like probably took no time at all. 
Um, so structure, it's like a lot of times it's like, you know, kind of what you're wanting, but you don't have that angle in to like, how are you going to go through it? So I feel your pain, man. That's hard. And the, but then when you have it, it's so exciting because you're like, oh, now I see how everything <laughs> flows together and everything kind of fits into its right place. So that's so once you get there, yeah. it's really fun. Yeah, but it's hard. It's much harder than I think non-writers um, would anticipate how hard structure is for nonfiction or for fiction, too. It's just as hard for fiction. Yeah, structure is hard. Did you read mostly fiction or do you read mostly nonfiction? What's well, interesting until I until a certain point in my life, I read almost only fiction, mm -hmm. um, and then I became like the whole world of nonfiction opened up to me. I don't know where I was before that, um, but uh, but now <laughs> I read a balance. Probably I'll go through phases. Like if I'm in an obsessive phase on a subject, a lot of times I'll be very nonfiction heavy because I'm like working through. But I love, but I love fiction, um, and so and I will often you know go through a phase where. Um, I'll be reading a lot of fiction and it's funny. I don't know if you experience this as a reader, but like you'll go through sort of dry periods where you'll read, like I'll read like three novels in a row and they're not that good. And I'm like, you know what? Maybe I just don't love fiction the way I used to. And then I'll read something that's excellent. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, I forgot how good it could be. I need more. Um, and I've been in a really good run lately. Like I've read so much good stuff and I'm like, Oh my gosh. It's, I mean, I know it's going to come to an end because it always does. And you always make mistakes and start reading things that aren't good. But um, but it's exciting when you like when you discover a new author or um, or like you just kind of wander into a new part of the library and, and find a bunch of great stuff. So I read I read a lot of both. And I also read children's literature. I'm obsessed with children's literature. So I read tons yeah. of children's literature and, and young adult literature as well. I'm in three book groups where we talk about children's literature and young adult literature. Um, I have a, and in fact, if somebody if people are interested, I have a there's a thing on my site, which is my 81 favorite works of children's literature and young adult literature, because I'm always trying to persuade grownups to read this stuff because it's so good. It's it, I mean, it's just as good for, you know, the Golden Compass is just as good if you're an adult as if you're, you know, 14. So I'm like, why would you not read it anyway? Yeah. Um, so I'm always trying to get people to realize how much how many masterworks there are in children's literature and young adult literature. I have so many things I want to ask you about. I know we're coming close. We're coming um, at the end of our of our time here. So hopefully in the future we can do a round two because I have so many things I want to ask you about. Uh, like for instance, how, how do you how are you part of so many book clubs? How do you read so much? Because I know you're you're uh, you read an inordinate amount of books and and then still have time to produce such a massive amount of work. I, I want to also ask you about things like look like I I don't read any fiction. Right. I, I read almost no fiction at mm. all. I'm completely nonfiction. And so, you know, I want to ask mm. some, some of your views there. Um, so hopefully we can set up a, a, a time in the future. But I, I wanted to ask you something that, that I think will kind of draw out some hopefully something something useful for our for our listeners and kind of get to know you a little bit more. We've talked a lot about kind of your strengths and, and things like this, how you approach your work. I love the idea of superpowers. Um, and by that, I mean kind of like the things that you take for granted um, that other people find fascinating or that other people find impressive about you. Um, what would you say your superpower is? You know, well, I'm a very fast typist, so that's good. Um, I, I think really if I if I had to like say what I think my superpower is, I think I do often see what everyone sees, but I'll notice something that other people haven't noticed. Mm. You know, and, and a lot of the nicest thing that anybody ever says to me about my work, and I hear it fair often, fair, you know, fairly often, which is very gratifying to me, is when people say like, you know, I'd always known that myself, but I just never really quite put it into words or I'd noticed that myself, but I just really, I didn't, I, I didn't, I didn't really kind of understand what was going on or like that feeling. Cause that's my favorite thing is when you read something and you're like, Oh my goodness, I see the world more clearly. Now you've pointed out something to me that like all of a sudden, like I just see things more clearly. Um, or somebody points out like, um, like I remember reading like a parenting book where the where the point was being made, like you should acknowledge the truth of other people's feelings, because when you tell people that they're not experiencing a negative emotion, it just makes them feel worse. Whereas if you acknowledge that they're feeling bad, often they'll feel better. And you're like, well, what does that even mean? But it's like if I say to you, like, oh, come on, you know, you'll have a fun time. You always like going to these parties and you're like, but I don't feel like going. It's like it doesn't make you feel better. So he's like, oh, you shouldn't be scared or you're going to have fun or you're not hungry or, you know, you always love uh, camping. 
but when you say like, oh, you don't feel like going, I know, I know. Sometimes it's just like you'd rather stay home and watch TV. You know, it's just one of those nights. It's like then you're like, okay, somebody hears me. And when I heard that, I was like, of course that's true. <laughs> the minute you say it, it's obviously true. I've experienced it a million times myself. I've seen it fail a million times. Um, and it's just now I see the world more clearly. So I think I think I do work at that a lot. And I'm constantly on the hunt for those kinds of things. And I, I think I am. I think I do manage to do it. Um, so that's that's what I try to do. At least that's what I that's what I work on to be my superpower. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree with, with that assessment of yourself. So, um, Gretchen, we are we are pretty much out of time here. I, I just wanted to say thank you so much for for being here and and taking the time to share all these great insights with us. I wanted to ask you, um, I, I know you have a, an awesome podcast that I listen to frequently, I'm Happier with Gretchen Rubin, and um, I wanted to ask you about that and also just what else you're working on and, and where people mm. can can connect with you. Yeah, so I have the Happier with Gretchen Rubin podcast, and there I, every week I talk about how to be happier with my sister, Elizabeth Kraft, who's a TV writer and producer, um, so that is really fun. And then I have a website, GretchenRubin.com, and I have all kinds I, – I write there constantly about sort of my adventures and happiness and human nature, and I have all kinds of resources. Like we were talking about reading, how to do more reading. Like I have a, a one-pager on how to get more reading done, which is something a lot, and there's tons of resources, discussion guides, all kinds of stuff. Great. Um, I'm all over social media. I love to engage with people on social media. It's always under my name, Gretchen Rubin. So, um, you know, Facebook, I have once a week, I do a live, um, show where like people can just, it's called ask Gretchen Rubin live. And you can just, we just talk about something related to happiness, good habits or human nature. And then I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn and Instagram, and what I'm working on now, I have a book, a little book that I wrote just for fun, kind of as a side project called Outer Order, Inner Calm, which is coming out in March yeah. um, 2019, which is going to be about basically uh, how to create more outer order, which for some, for a lot of people ends up being like something that they find like really energizing and freeing to kind of get their outer when you get control over the stuff of your life, you often feel more in control of your life generally. And so this is just like a little fun book about that. So, yeah. And, and I've got a lot of stuff going on still with the four tendencies. There's a lot of people who want like a workshop or a video course. And so I'm building out some of the stuff that um, people seem to want in order to uh, start using the four tendencies, whether it's like in a health practice or at work or, you know, for teachers or, or so I'm, so I'm creating stuff like that. So, um, yeah. Nice. And I love to hear from people. So hit me up if you have a example or an illustration or a question, I love to hear from people. That's awesome. Well, I will link to all the relevant, uh, social channels and projects you're working on in our show notes here on the, on the, on the website and in this podcast episode. Um, Gretchen, thank you so much again for being here. It was, it was a pleasure. Oh, it was so much fun to talk to you. Thanks for having me. All right. We'll talk soon. Hey, thanks for listening to the Think Grow podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and find value in this podcast, I humbly ask you to please subscribe and or leave me a review on iTunes. Or you can just share it with a friend who you think might find value in it. If you've already done any of these, I want to take a moment to sincerely thank you. I truly, truly appreciate your support. Lastly, if you have any suggestions for future guests or topics you'd like to hear covered, you can email podcast at thinkgrowprosper.org.